HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network on tour. We are broadcasting live today from the Le Creuset podcast studio at Charleston Wine and Food. My name is Kat Johnson, and my panel right now is one of my most highly anticipated panels of the, of the festival. Um, we are joined by Glenn Roberts of Anson Mills. Welcome, Glenn. Hi. How are you doing, Kat? <laughs> He's back, uh, back. He was here last year. We talked about... Sapelo Island Purple Ribbon Cane. We're going to have a similar conversation today, but about a different, different plant. We are also joined by Ann Marshall and Scott Blackwell of Highwire Distilling. Welcome. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. us. Yeah. Ann was on earlier this weekend talking about the world's biggest cookie. Uh, her former life as a baker, bakery owner. Um, now she and her husband Scott own Highwire. And we were talking about the similarities a little bit between the ingredients and processes of baking and distilling. Um, but Scott, this is your first time joining us. Yes. Welcome. I'm a newbie. You are. Thanks. So um, let's talk a little bit about Highwire. How did you guys decide to open up a distillery in Charleston? Well, we had owned the bakery and, um, and it had gotten really big and, and we had lost a little bit of that, that touch with what we were making and doing. and. And Scott had been brewing beer at our house for probably a year, and he was really fired up about opening a brewery. And uh, we sold the bakery, and, and it kind of came down to brass tacks as to what we were going to do next. And, and I was really wary of opening a brewery because there were just so many. So I uh, put a bug in his ear about maybe taking it to the next level. And uh, and he he went along with it, so I sort of hoodooed him into. Yeah, I was doubting actually for <laughs> about three years after we opened the distillery. Actually, <laughs> uh, Wait, but when did you say this is now a good idea? No, it was. I mean, you know, uh, I just brewing. You know, had and Ann was, I think the right. It was the right decision, but um, distilling was was still fairly young at that point. There were only a couple hundred, maybe 150 distilleries when we first started looking at it. And I said, can we make a living? Is anybody really making a living as a craft distiller? And kind of what are we bringing? What does the word craft mean? And what are we doing that we're going to bring that, you know, isn't offered already? And I didn't really, we had never distilled. So, um, you know, it was kind of like a major finger in the wind of like, well, A, we don't, we don't, we've never distilled anything. And B, you know, 
we don't really have any good examples around here that we can point to to say, yeah, we could do something like that and be pay our bills. So we went to Oregon and the first place we walked into uh, was a distillery and this guy had, there was stuff everywhere. And he goes, hey, he walked, the owner walks up, he goes, hey, what are you guys doing? I said, oh, you know, we're here checking it out. We're thinking about opening a distillery on the East Coast. He's like, oh yeah, it's great, man. Uh, I just quit my day job. I've been doing this for eight years. And I'm like, oh my gosh. It took eight years? (laughs) Boy. I was like, we don't have eight years. (laughs) (laughs) Nor do we want two jobs. Although, you know, our company's pretty small, so we each have about seven jobs. But it's all at one company. (laughs) Yes, it's all at one company. Yeah. Um, So I'm curious kind of like how the three of you met, how far back you go, and then how you sort of collaborated. That's a good good lead in. Well, uh, uh, this this conversation we're having is a good Glenn, you know, we called Glenn a couple of times, and he continued to ignore my phones. (laughs) Glenn's making Uh a face. Wait, this and is going to involve the Supreme Court? And then, oh gosh. And then this guy named Rathead Riley walks in the distillery one day. And if you don't know Rathead, he is like the mayor of Southern Food and Beverage. He's, he's a, um, he sells insurance, oddly enough. But uh, he is a, a huge advocate for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And that's how we met Rathead. And, and we were, Rathead said, is there anything I can do for you before I leave town? And we were like, yeah, we're having a really hard time getting in touch with Glenn Roberts. And we feel like we really need to talk to him before we dig into building a whiskey program. And, and Rathead left the distillery. And five minutes later, Glenn called my cell phone. <laughs> I do everything Ann Marshall, Scott Blackwell, and Riley <laughs> say to do. I think Especially Glenn, Rathead. I know, I know in Glenn now, you were probably in a rice field without phone service. I mean, it was like you a region. You were probably also we, like, who are these yo-yos that say they well, want to, you know, well, use. We met long before that, apparently, and I'd forgotten. We did, right? yeah. yeah. We'd met about um, five years before that at a slow food event in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, so, that was fun. So was, the phone call led to, and, and this, this phone call sort of was a premeditated attempt to say, okay, what is our place? And knowing, being a food person, I knew that, you know, just like tomatoes or mushrooms, all grains aren't created equal. And the backbone of bourbon is corn. So I said, the first place we need to dig into is corn. And I know there's this guy in South Carolina that knows a lot about corn. And, uh, and grain in general. So that was sort of the, the, the reasoning. And we, we, we realized that, that we needed help. And we, uh, we had a conversation with Glenn in like December, I guess it was. And then uh, this was uh, the, the two months after we opened and um, you were down at, uh, at Clemson's Research Center a month or so later maybe like late January, he said, let's meet down at Clemson. Uh, we'll talk about corn. And I showed up and there was a six foot table full of all sorts of varieties. And Glenn's going through the different seeds and this one's this, and this was this, and this is the quality of this, and this is what the flavor of this. And he kept skipping around this one in the middle of the table. And I said, yeah, yeah, well, what, what about that one? And he goes, oh yeah, that's Jimmy Red. That's the one you want. Uh, he's like, that's an old hooch corn. Uh, oh, hooch corn. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> hooch. <laughs> what? Uh, and hooch is uh, actually out of uh, the genre and tropes from the Prohibition era. 
And I don't know its entomology, but it is used uh, in gas stations all around Appalachia. And anywhere, like there's a place called Tyner, South Carolina, that's like an eye blink, but it's a wonderful place. It's right on the South Carolina, North Carolina border. And that was the first place I actually heard that term. That was uh, 25 years ago. So right? this Jimmy Red Corn is like a corn that is, for, for, what, for what reason is Jimmy Red Corn great for distilling? What characteristics? Well, we didn't know originally, and I thought, what does Glenn know about distilling? But he seems to be fairly confident about this. <laughs> well, he, he didn't really tell us at that point, but he had had some of this stuff uh, back in the day. I drunk so, gallons of it. So he <laughs> he knows his way around. So we uh, so we uh, but then I said, great, we need to make some of that. He goes, well, great, uh, we can get you some seed. And then you're going to have to grow it because there's not enough for you to even make uh, a batch of it. And so we worked with Clemson that that summer. And uh, I went down, myself and Ann went down probably every other week. I was down there at least every week uh, watching it go in the ground to germing to coming up through. And I'm not really, I'm not a farm person, so it was all very interesting to me, kind of what was going on, but also I didn't understand the, the sort of stages of it. But when the corn came on the cob and drops and it turns that deep red, I got really excited. And it's just more of an angst of hope, I guess. And um, at that point, we didn't have a way to get it out of the field. Uh, it had been raining for 23 days. So we called in a bunch of volunteers, a bunch of folks that are here this weekend, chefs and bartenders and friends. Glenn was there. Uh, we went in and hand broke the two and a half acres, and uh, then we had no way to clean it or mill it or anything. So Glenn took the heavy lifting, took it up and cleaned it, milled it, and milled it in stages. So we got it as we uh, we needed it. And when we mashed it, it was that beautiful deep burgundy red color. Everything was going great, and then the next morning I'm we go in and look at the fermentation, and there's this really thick oil cap which we haven't seen with white or like yellow three corn. and a half inches thick and it smelled like banana laffy taffy whoa yeah it did not smell like corn like you know we were used to and um we thought there again this is going in the right direction we got it into the still we don't uh you know oil and everything pumps across so oil's coming off in the distillate so there's a viscosity to this distillate and almost like a light spice flavor and and to answer your original question um so whiskey corn is very different from sweet corn it's got a really high starch content so that makes it ideal for making whiskey and it also makes it ideal for for grits for cornbread um it is not a corn that you can eat off the cob it's a little too doughy and that starch that just, like, we have eaten it off the cob, it's terrible, but the starch just completely dries your mouth out. And, and that's, that also makes it a great tortilla corn. Um, so that, that was an interesting correlation um, to make for us. And just the flavor of it is just really robust, really complex. It's not, um, corn these days has been bred, the flavor's been bred out of corn. So um, number two dent corn is a Franken corn. 
that is bread for fuel. It's not bread for eating. And when you look at the corn lobby's numbers on where corn goes, I think less than 1% goes to human consumption. Yeah, we, 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 once we distilled it and got it in a barrel, we originally were gonna use a quote unquote flavoring grain in the bourbon industry. It's usually wheat or rye, those are the flavoring grains and they consider corn sugar. Well, this distillate was so complex, we were like, let's just put that in a barrel and see what happens at 100% corn. And people to this day, when they drink it, they're like, is there wheat or rye in here? What's in here? What else is in here? And we're like, it's corn. And they, they doubt this. Um, and Even Julian Van Winkle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So For weeks. It, yes insisted that we were just not being honest with him <laughs> about the mash bill. Is there anyone else that you know of that's using the Jimmy Red Corn um, in their bourbons? There are a couple other small distilleries, but the problem is we've had to create our own supply chain. It sounds like it. And, with the farming and it's and just yeah. not that readily available. You can't buy it on, you know, even from a seed exchange, you would only be able to get probably less than 50 pounds, if that. It's it's not. Yeah, you wouldn't even be able to get that. And how much do you need to make you, like your batch? We use 1,000 pounds in a single batch, and we're we're getting ready to upgrade our facility. So um, next year this time, we hope to be using 3,500 pounds in one batch. So that that's going to up the game, and also you know really create a lot of work for us to do on the front end of getting that seed in the ground and making sure that we have the supply. Bios, yeah, the, the seed security is is we talk a lot about that. Yeah, it's very stressful. It costs a lot. It takes a lot of energy. Um, we are just starting to dig back into that, but that was sort of the impetus for this. Trip, yeah, let's talk a little tough. bit about that, about how, how you had the, to find this corn. The lesson, the lesson here, and uh, Ann and Scott are uh, unpredictably, in my view, uh, very um, loop-like thinkers. They think all the way through things, and I'm not used to dealing with people like that, honestly. <laughs> my wife is that way, right? Hi, Kay. Uh, but the, the lesson here is... It started with Ted Tuning, who didn't want that corn to go away because he liked everything about the corn, period. And he was very familiar with black culture on James Island. Uh, and the last family that had it, kids didn't want to grow it. And so Ted decided to save it himself. And he was pretty quiet about it. And I happened to see him growing it. Uh, I didn't even know who he was. And my daughter actually spotted it. So. There's Ted, didn't know it was all that unique when he started, but it turns out to be a specific land race, heirloom, uh, that he was saving. I'm not sure that he understood that how much culture was behind it when he got it, but it, I got some, I blew it up, I gave seed back to him, he gave seed back to me, and we traded back and forth for a couple of years. Then we. Why, why does trading it back and forth you, matter? Phenotypic plasticity. Don't you love it? Yeah. It's my favorite, <laughs> my favorite term. Can you uh, that corn responds uh, to its terroir, mm. uh, just like wine grapes, which now I'm sitting next to two experts that know about sensory and gastro uh, neurology, et cetera, et cetera. So as you go through those things, uh, you think uh, about gastronomy and how the corn is actually reacting to its sense of place. And it changes. The plant actually can look different in different places, too. And what Ted and I were doing was just, here's mine, here's yours, for a couple, three years. Um, and then Ted Tuning 
Uh, and I decided, look, you know, it looks like this corn is unique here and we need to, one, look at it hard and two, get some pros in here to save it. So we went to Merle Shepard and Dr. Brian Ward, Dr. Merle Shepard here at the Clemson University Research Center. And they were intaking, uh, then it was secret that they had a seed vault in there. So I didn't even know they had the seed vault, but they were intaking local stuff into their seed vault, which they still have. It's bomb proof, hurricane proof. It's the coolest place in South Carolina, mm. if you like seed. So they took it in, uh, and then Brian, uh, Dr. Brian Ward, grew it out. And that's, uh, that's actually the first person that pulled all this together with Scott and Ann because um, they need security. It changes every year, and you have to reselect it. And at Clemson University, they had lots of experience. Ted had lots of experience. He was in on it. And Ted's coming back, right? We're doing He's two coming. seed increases this year at two separate farms. Yeah. Because of that. Is Ted yeah. working with you this Ted's year? Ted's working yeah, with us that this is year, cool. which is exciting. And he's yeah. very... He just had a grandbaby, his first grandbaby. So uh, he wanted his daughter to name the baby James. After, baby James? After James. Jimmy Red. I yeah. like that. <laughs> so every time she posts a picture of the baby, yeah. I say, ooh, James Rouge, how's he doing today? James, James Rouge. Rouge. I like it. I like it. It's Fancy. French. Yeah, but so, I think, well, corn is very promiscuous, so you have to be really careful about where you plant it and when you plant it, because it will get crossed up with corn that's anywhere near it. So we have to really work with farm partners that are, are very serious and that understand that they are being stewards of a crop that almost went away and a crop that we're trying to keep as pure as possible and continue in a straight line from a genetic standpoint. I, I read somewhere that there was like two cobs left at one point. Is that the case? Or is that I think a little Ted bit of a... got a little bit more than that, but you're right. It yeah. wasn't much. It was very yeah, small. Yeah, it came from a very, very old family who did not want to be named and still don't. Wow. But Ted has the history. He'd be he'd be a great book, and I've told my book agent that he should chase Ted down. I don't know where, where that's going. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the recent trip uh, that Jimmy Redcorn has inspired. And where did you go? Why did you go there? And tell me tell me the story. I'm going to let Glenn take well, that I'll kick one. it off, but Scott yeah. Nan, again, had much higher uh, integrity uh, philosophy behind <laughs> this trip than I did. And it, it was my contention that there was such a thing as a Mago de Maiz. And it was a difficult decision to figure out whether it was geneticists that are working at the Center for the International Study of Maize and Wheat. Uh, north of uh, Mexico City, or someplace else, or the Zapotec and the other native peoples in the Mayan communities uh, up and down uh, the Americas, period. And so I just decided, I'd been asking questions, and Kate Barney, who works with uh, Row 7 now, uh, Charlotte Douglas, Dan Barber, Kate Barney had worked with Javier, uh, Yavera founding Macienda and it's a company that's based on the original 59 Zapotec style mazes uh, from all over though it's not just Zapotec so it's all over Mexico, North America, South America there's not much up here of the origin mazes and uh, Martha Wilcox, a North Carolina person who uh, has her doctorate uh, was the person who organized this. And she works for CMIT and she works for INAFAP, and these are all acronyms, you can look them up online, but they're all people that are postdoc scientists that study maize. And Martha 
asked uh, me if I'd come down. And I said, oh yeah, right? Because one of our people that works at Anson Mills lives in Mexico City and works from there. So uh, she went to meet the Magos, right? It means magician in Spanish. Uh, and uh, the whole day was in Spanish, and they, I think, cooked 80 different kinds of maize and served it to her in three different forms. And then she stayed an extra day. She could not believe that she was in this neurogastronomy envelope with a bunch of postdocs eating the best food she'd ever had in her life. She'd lived in Mexico City off and on since she was born, right? And so she called me up and she said, I just had the best series of 20 meals I've ever had in 48 hours in my life. And I go, I'm there. What do I do? Right? So I called up Ann and Scott because I figured they'd appreciate it. And then I pass it off to them. What happened then? Well, we definitely, I mean, I, I've been, you know, I, I, I reach out to Glenn pretty often with questions because we are, we're, you know, he's been doing this a long time, working with seeds, mainly there again, seed security. Also, I was very interested in sort of southeastern dents and how the migration happened. Um, and I knew that we, we don't talk a lot in the South, you know, Southern food. We talk a lot about the uh, African, West African diaspora of food, but we don't talk about that diaspora of maize. And really, you know, it's, it, we all know pieces of it, but it's not been in, in, you know, anything really in depth that I know of that's been published that, that talks about that. So I knew that Simit existed and uh, when Glenn mentioned the trip to Simit, possibly, I was like, we're in. Uh, we want to go. And then I just continued to say, when are we going? When are we going? When are we going? And, uh, and uh, I've got to get my plane ticket. Scott's a little um, bit of No, Ann's coming. I have to get two plane tickets. <laughs> I wasn't going to miss it. I got it. points. I got to use them. Let's go. Let's go. And so, yeah, we were, but so we were really, really uh, anxious and Really, for me, I had heard about this 59 varieties, but it didn't really make sense to me of like, what, is, what does that mean, 59 varieties exactly? Um, and it wasn't until we got down there uh, that it made complete sense when they had them in the baskets and the different varieties all laid out. And they're like cousins in these baskets. So it wasn't like, oh, there's, you know, 59 cobs. It's like, no, there's... 59 sort of families um, and we said okay well which one which one of these is southeastern dent i.e jimmy red great 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 grandparents where where are they where are their cousins so we really that first time we worked with jimmy red we were so just excited and but also a little bit baffled as to how we had not seen anywhere near this result with any corn that we had worked with to that point. And we had worked with a lot of heirlooms, a lot of white corn, some yellow corn, some blue corn. And so it really just made us think, you know, if this is this, what else is out there and how do we go about finding it? So it really only made sense for us to seek it at the source of maize production in the world. And that's, you know, we'd, we'd kept our eye on it and and we were just really intrigued by what, what that ancestor corn might look like or taste like. And um, so we visited those three seed banks back to back to back. And, and we felt like we were getting close. We kept seeing cobs of yellow corn that were clearly dent corns that had... So Jimmy Red has a, a specific row count of kernels around the cob. And we were, you know, intent on finding that, but also just 
we felt like the kernel shape would probably be similar, the cob shape would probably be similar. So it was it was really fun, and, and we were also kind of joking the whole time. Like I think the first day we did see a cob of Tuxpeño, um, which is the what we think is the ancestor corn, but it was yellow, and we were like, does this come in red? <laughs> <laughs> You're like shopping. Anyone? <laughs> yeah, we we both stumbled on it though. That we 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 stopped at the second stop in Oaxaca, and. Um, we both walked up to this, ba another basket, and we were like, and you could see the blue, we found red, the red yellow. One. We were like, this is the this is the family, and um, and it was really exciting, more of just out of learning more about what do these cousins taste like in relation to Jimmy Red, uh, and sort of as seed also seed security of like you know thinking about what's in there that makes this so special because we're not scientists. We don't, I mean, I don't know all the properties. We've done some genetic work with Clemson with basic flavor compounds like furfural and anthocyanin and uh, cinnamic acid and things of that nature. But we didn't know, we don't know. I mean, there's hundreds or thousands of properties in this corn that, you know, we couldn't possibly fund all the research that we would need to, to do to figure that out. But we're culinary people, so, and Glenn was down there more on, I think, a culinary seed adventure with some other folks that are also interested in the more culinary side. So we were, we said, let's, let's just go down as culinary fans and sort of kind of check out the, the whole culinary scene and see why they use different mazes for different purposes. I'm very interested in nixtamalization, just from a food standpoint. So we got to, it was, it was just crazy. I can't even explain the trip, to be perfectly honest. It was a crazy three-day deep dive, 14, 16-hour days. It was intense. Uh, How about 25,000 distinct cultivars of maize and conservancy in three different places yeah. in the same number of days? And that doesn't count going to see the real Magos, the Zapotec, out in the foothills. Yeah, yeah, and right. the, the true hallmark of, of just how interesting and overwhelming it was is we'd get back in the van and nobody talked to each other. And these two guys right here can, <laughs> can talk a blue streak. <laughs> but Glenn, the first night, I remember we were going to bed and I was like, did you notice how quiet Glenn was in the van? <laughs> well, we, we, it was overwhelming. It was so, it was one of the best trips I've ever taken. It was definitely life-changing. Not only from a human humanitarian standpoint because the people were so amazing uh, but also just the great work that these folks are doing um, and um, seeing how powerful it is that they're preserving this culture and it's inspiring so for me um, Simmet you can tell Martha is very passionate I mean um, about and she loves the farmers. She loved, you know, she loves the preservation, but she loves these people because she realizes they're the key. But we went the next day. We flew to Oaxaca. We we went to Texcoco the first day to Simit in outside Mexico City. Did a whole tour of their facility. Then got on planes the next morning. Flew to Oaxaca, 
dove right into a restaurant that they do make their own masa, mill their own masa. All these different varieties have this really cool kamal right out front. They're making tortillas on. I mean, it's just like corn heaven. Um, and then um, we go from there to this village that's known for tortilla making. And we sit down and they've assembled the dignitaries of the town to, and they line us up at a table and they're lined up and then they introduce themselves. We've got the president and the, you know, I guess, I don't know, maybe the vice president or whatever, but we- Of the village. Of the village. And then we go through and they explain who we all are. And you can tell they're very honored to have us there and very proud to show off what they do. And then we just start walking from house to house. And, and, there, and there are women working apparently seven days a week from seven to three every day over wood fire, uh, turning what they grow, their, you know, their, their families grow into something more valuable, uh, tortillas, and we're tasting yellow, red, blue, uh, and then we, then we get to Purple, our, and, and there's chickens and turkeys, donkeys orange. and turkeys. And we get All to the, the last turkeys. one though, and this, uh, there's a woman there making tortillas with hybrid corn because they're introducing hybrids uh, trying to say, this is easier. Why are you messing with the, the ancestral stuff? This is much cheaper and easier. Well, that tortilla suffered from flavor. Uh, so it really just cemented in my head of like, this is a, this, what we're doing is worthwhile. Um, so are they are they distilling with the corn down there? No, no. It's, it's all like food. food. No, the, the mezcal traditions and the palenques, um, which does bring up an interesting thing. They do make uh, very elevated spirit uh, ferments with these things that uh, we did not. I'm going back this summer going to like go there. They use uh, sacred ash in them, their spirit drinks, and they do use maize for those things, and they're supposed to be phenomenal. We had a, some non-alcoholic drinks that were so far off the charts, I'd never even tasted anything Tahate. like it. Which yeah. brings, yeah, yeah, exactly. Which brings up something that I think, um, I had a conversation with John T. Edge about 12 years ago. He came to look at a cornfield that I was working in for some odd reason. I don't know why, he just showed up. So I was in the neighborhood, I'm going, oh, okay. Um, and uh, John T. Edge, director of the Southern Foodways Alliance, sorry. Um, and we started talking about Appalachia and source water and the idea that the best hooch in Appalachia is based on the best corn in Appalachia paired with source water, meaning water straight out of the rock. And the concept there is the same thing that Scott and Ann are chasing in my mind, which is source food. And honestly, before this trip even evolved, I hadn't thought about looping what happened. So you need to make sure you tell what you guys discovered down there, which I thought was amazing once you found where and when. And I'll introduce it by saying what we were told there, which is true, we saw field peas that are all from East Africa, but somehow are documented centuries back on the east west coast excuse me, of Oaxaca. And I've asked every field pea scientist I know how the hell that happened, including the people down there, and nobody knows. Dr. David Shields uh, supposes that it could have been part of Polynesian exchange, right? Kind of weird, but that, that means the field peas go way back there. And we also see the expression of those same field peas in Wilmington, North Carolina, 
John Corkendall just discovered them last year in a grower that was had them in his family forever down there. So the idea of source food starts to become a very serious notion when you're talking about biosecurity for the future and genetics, because these are things we didn't even know we have. Nobody knew we had these kind of, they're black cow peas from Wilmington. David, David Shields thinks they're kind of like Crowders, but it turns out there's something else from the west coast of Oaxaca that's really germane to this whole discussion, which is where did Jimmy Red really come from? Right, yeah, so the Tuxpeno variety that we both sort of walked up on at our second stop, our first second stop in Oaxaca, second. we went to line, or kind of a late brunch at Inafap, yeah. and, um, and he, they had all the baskets out, and we both walked up and both separately took photos of this basket and we were both sort of ran to each other and we're like we we found we we think we found something here and it was and it's low elevation coastal and it's grown below a thousand feet sounds familiar yeah on the coast yeah charleston's at you know 12 on a hill (laughs) (laughs) very tall so we showed some photos to uh what's the guy's name Talking about Jim Holland, Smitty, Flavio, no. Flavio, Flavio, oh, yeah. Flavio, Flavio from Inafap, yeah, yeah. So uh, Dr. Flavio in yeah. Aragon from so who Inifab. runs? Thank who you, runs that station? And we showed him some photos of the Jimmy Red, and he was like, sort of lit up, and was like, "Oh, I grow that. I grow something like that uh, down near the coast." And so we immediately were like, "Okay, we need to go to the coast." Flavio's uh, our guy. Yeah. So we're going back uh, this year. Uh, the coast is also like seven and a half hours by car <laughs> oh, wow. from Oaxaca yeah. City. So we we immediately were like, how long would it take for us to get down there? Could we do this now? And then I was like, there's no way. We would have we would have missed too much on the well, rest of no, the journey. And also we want to be obviously there when, when we're close to harvest. Yeah. And trips like these tend to breed more questions and answers, and we immediately wondered what the path was from the west coast of Oaxaca to Charleston, South Carolina, for Jimmy Red. And um, the researchers, I feel like, tend to operate in silos because their research is so important to them. Um, so we've, we've had a little bit of a hard time getting people to talk to each other about you know what they know in order to connect these dots. Um, but we think it came up probably through the American Southwest and then went east. But in, in talking to the a few people we've talked to, there's some fascinating seed history that we had never considered. And, and one is that um, it may have been grown here in the 1800s, but after the Civil War, a lot of Southern planters uprooted and went back, went to Brazil because slavery was still legal there and they could take all their slaves and continue farming the way that they always had. So when you pick up a seed like that and take it to another place, you pick up a whole different DNA, essentially. The DNA converts. Um, but also terroir. you've got different terroir. Um, and so, and you've also got potential of intermingling with Brazilian varietals that would also have come down from Mexico. So there's this whole other bizarro, maybe, you know, intermingling. And then a lot of those planters moved back after Reconstruction. So you've got this crazy, you know, there's all these variables that could have possibly happened. And it's picking up with every move, with every move that that 
that you know group makes out of Oaxaca north into the southwestern U.S. and then east you get you know a different little twist to the DNA with every planting so that's fascinating and then Scott talked to somebody a couple weeks ago that also mentioned um, how much was lost with the Trail of Tears and how these Native American groups as they were moved back west lost their land they lost their seeds yeah so I think ultimately I think our I feel, I actually, I felt like it was like, is this a long shot? But I feel like it's the best we're gonna do. And I think even talking to people who do this for a living who, um, and multiple people who do this for a living, it, the best we're gonna be able to do is piece together our best theory around sort of a general theory. And, 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 and all of them sort of say the same thing, which is it moved them to the South, west and across the, the bottom of the country and up over over here. After that, you know, we don't really know exactly, but we're doing genetic fingerprinting with uh, Dr. Jim Holland um, with USDA. Uh, there's a germplasm uh, center at Simit that we will also be speaking with about uh, Tuxpeno genetics and trying to there, you use a little bit of science to see if we can't sort of piece some piece. So it's gonna be coming at it from multiple angles to sort of uh, construct this theory. And really, at the end of the day, we're distillers. You know I mean? We're- <laughs> <laughs> On that note, because we do have to wrap up in just a second, but I, this has been so fascinating. I've loved doing this an, another year to talk about a very specific ingredient, how this insane amount of work goes into working with that ingredient, but then translating it into something that's just really delicious. So on that note, and Scott, tell us where people can find the Jimmy Red Bourbon and more about Highwire. Yes, yeah, so our our sort of number one online outlet right now is Astor Wines in New York City, and they, they carry most of our products, and they have done a really good job of stocking Jimmy Red and making sure they still have it. Um, we release it um, generally at the end of the year. That's our, our big annual release. Um, but this year we are hoping to to have it available all year round. Um, and it's, it is a beautiful spirit. All of the things that we've talked about, about the corn, the oil, um, the flavor, the cinnamic acid, all of those things translate into the spirit. So it's got this really creamy mouthfeel, this amazing viscosity. Um, it's got some notes of marzipan, some baking spice that's coming from that cinnamic acid, which is linked to the color red. Um, and then it's just, you know, it's such a, a cool product because it's 100% corn. It's the only bourbon I know of. I was actually with Bill Thomas from Jack Rose yesterday, and I asked him, you know, if he knows of any other 100% corn bourbon, and he could not name one. So yeah, we've stumped yeah. a lot of whiskey um, enthusiasts, but it's... That's really cool. I will mention that we have distilled some other varieties. We distilled some some blue corn from Mexico about two years ago, sort of secretly, quietly, and we've been tasting that recently. And this has a real high level of the anthocyanin, which is in blueberries and Aussie. And it has almost like a brandy nose, but we tasted it side by side with the Jimmy Red. Completely different flavor. Um, richness, mouthfeel, all of that, some of the characteristics, but completely different. So. Um, we're just sort of starting to scratch the surface is basically the point of this. So Very That's cool. so cool. And Glenn, my last question for you is, if we do this next year, what ingredient are we talking about then? I think we should be talking about 
the recovery of Italy's oldest rice out of the Sicilian exchange that came to uh, the Salzburger Mill in the 1730s, uh, which is right by Savannah, Georgia. The archives there are pretty thorough, and there's someone doing postdoc work who isn't a postdoc. His name's Justin Cherry. He's a chef here in town, and he has half-ground baking, and he's doing the definitive work looking at colonial rices, amongst other things. Um, so it, I think it'll be, it would be something like that, uh, or something we find between now and then. And the last, last note, you never know what you have you need to check really carefully. If somebody says, oh yeah, they do that someplace else. Our friend Nat Bradford was told by an internationally recognized geneticist that his stuff wasn't unique and he just kept at it, and it was. And with Jimmy Red, it would have gone were it not for Ted Tuning. Yeah. We wouldn't even be sitting here talking about this. That's pretty extraordinary, and that's just two. Can you imagine? There were 120-some thousand distinct maize cultivars by 1900 registered with the USDA. At that time, the Department of Agriculture. Nothing. How many are there now, Glenn? Well, it's uh, 23,025 distinct worldwide, wow. not just yeah. here. And to that point, Scary. you know, like Bloody Butcher, which is another red corn, if you order Bloody Butcher seed right now, you don't really know what you're getting. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's just a class of corn. Yeah. It's just a class. Uh, so it could have 10 things in it or it could have nothing in it. It's right. hard to say. It's so, got red pericard. That's so, the other yeah. skin. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for sitting down with me to talk about. I mean, you had me at Oaxaca, but then obviously I wanted Kat, to. you have to come. I signed me up. When are we going, Glenn? When June, are we going? June when are we going? I got to book my ticket. And harvest. June 24th is the planting. It's November, game. right? I'll put it in my calendar. Yeah, we're go and we're gonna all make Kate Barney help us this time. All right. I'm okay. putting it in my calendar. You guys aren't gonna be able to get uh, rid of me. When do we need to buy our Perfect. plane tickets? <laughs> All right. Um, thank you to Glenn Roberts and Marshall Scott Blackwell. I'm Kat Johnson. Thank you again to Luckersay and the Julia Child Foundation for making Heritage Radio Network on tour at Charleston Wine and Food possible. Make sure that you go um, listen or check out our full schedule of the festival at heritageradionetwork.org slash Charleston 2019. We will have all of our interviews posted very soon for you to listen on demand. So make sure you're Stay in tune to the website, and we'll be back shortly with more interviews from the festival. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.